Hey everyone, this is Chris Sands recording this intro from JFK Airport, and you're listening to The Leading Edge, a podcast at the forefront of tech and law, produced by one of the most powerful professional community platforms, TechGC. In the show, we strive to share engaging, concise, and informative conversations from both legal and entrepreneurial minds, with the goal of unlocking modern business insights. If you like it, I hope you'll rate and review the show in your podcast app. Today, I'm joined by Matt Gipple as part three of our Autonomous Vehicles series. Matt is the former general counsel of Cruise Automation, a pioneer in autonomous driving that has raised billions of dollars from the likes of SoftBank, Honda Motor, and Qualcomm Ventures, and who was acquired by General Motors in 2016. Matt helped establish ground rules for the new industry of autonomous vehicles and guided Cruise through sustained rapid growth from the company's early stages. He has since left and is now general counsel at healthcare startup Forward. In our conversation, we cover Matt's career pathway, the competitive and regulatory landscape of the AV industry, the debate over LIDAR versus radar technology, the social outcomes of autonomous vehicles, and other topics. Matt is a self-proclaimed legal nerd who has really great insight, both from an intellectual and operational standpoint. With that, let's tune into my convo with Matt Gipple. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really want to get an insider's look at the autonomous vehicle industry and identify some of the unique challenges and opportunities, both from a legal and technology perspective. But I thought a good starting point would be for you to just explain how you got into law and how that led to where you are today. Why did I go into law? Let's see. I studied abroad in college. I don't have any lawyers in my family, just for background purposes. I didn't really know what lawyers did, to be honest. Maybe nobody going to law school does, but I certainly didn't have any connections or anything like that. I studied finance in undergrad. Graduating when I did was not the best time to be a finance major, but fortunately at that time I'd already decided to go to law school. So anyway, in undergrad, the reason I'd already made the decision was I studied abroad in Argentina and I happened to meet this attorney. I don't remember the context, but he was traveling for business and he worked with Brazilian and Japanese companies, helping them make their products and ship them all around the world. And so this, to me, as a 20-year-old person, seemed really cool that someone from the U.S. could work with companies across the world, add value to their organizations, and get to travel in the meantime or as part of that. So there was no grand purpose. It was kind of like that. That sounded interesting. People tell me that lawyers like to read. I happen to like to read. And in law school, I got there, loved it. It was just sort of an incredible opportunity to learn and be around smart people and have engaging conversations and think about the complexities that there are just in the world, not just in law, but in the world. And also sometimes realize that language doesn't do everything for us. Language has a lot of weaknesses. There's always ambiguities in what we write. But anyway, so I was kind of a legal nerd, so to speak, really got into it. And I preferred the litigation side of the work. I kind of took a broad array of classes, but figured I would go do litigation and learn what I really wanted to do with my life. So I went to Latham and practiced in antitrust and general commercial litigation. Learned a lot there about how litigation actually works. That discovery ends up taking the vast, vast majority of time and cases and uh, just how to run a case and what it really means to litigate. Learned a little bit about how to write better. I had also, being a legal nerd, always wanted to clerk. Well, not always, but since going to law school, learning what it was, I thought that was kind of the 
peak, I mean, other than being a judge yourself, like that is the, you know, perhaps being a legislator, but working for a judge and helping decide what the law is, is just like something that's really appealing for someone who finds the law super interesting. So I always wanted to do that and managed to get a clerkship in San Francisco where I wanted to stay. So I took a detour from Latham to go do that and had every intention of returning. But while I was clerking, I got a call from a person who I'd known for a long time who was leaving one of his startups and considering starting a new one. And he wanted to start this company about self-driving cars. So he asked me, he said, hey, you know, I'm trying to raise money. You know, these investors, they're asking me about this legal stuff. And can you just give me a couple of bullet points to put those questions to bed so I can get on with my life? I was like, sure, you know, this is interesting to me. Sounds fun. I'll take a look at it. And I ended up, just, you know, I do a couple bullet points, do a couple more. This thing starts turning into multiple pages. Meanwhile, I have like a real job that I need to be doing. And so I went back to Kyle, the guy who started this company. And I said, like, you should just start something else. Self-driving cars, every level of government has some control over what you do and how you do it. So look, there's way better startups to start. So, you know, pick something else. So my shtick is that he's been ignoring that advice and ignoring my advice ever since. So with that, he was intrigued by the stuff that I had done, realized that he needed somebody in-house. So he asked me to join after I finished my clerkship, which I decided to do. So that's how I landed at Cruise. So this was super early days for Cruise when you first joined. And now the company has received insane amounts of funding. Can you go into the financings that were implemented at Cruise? We raised a bunch of money in the last, call it, year and a half. We got bought by GM in May of 2016. And then after talking with GM, working with them, we decided that we would do sort of, not a spinoff, but we would take outside investment. So starting in 2018, we started with SoftBank, took $900 million, and then some on the, they do a phased gate process where they give you money up front. And if you do something, you get more money later. So up to two and a quarter billion from SoftBank. Similar deal with Honda. Honda put in 275. They're developing a car with us. And then uh, took a third round in the spring of 2019 from some big name financial investor like T. Rowe Price. So we pulled in all in a little over $7 billion in capital. It hasn't all hit the bank yet because we've got a, for some of those, they're phased, but it was a big year. And how much did you really understand about autonomous vehicles prior to joining Cruise? I mean, when you are approaching an entirely new industry, how do you start understanding how to approach the landscape, which is fairly ambiguous and unknown? Where do you start from from day one? And what became some of your core responsibilities as you started to learn more? Let's see. So from day zero, there was just a ton to learn. So I didn't actually use outside counsel for this because interestingly, I think there are automotive outside counsel. They're largely based in the Midwest around the big automakers. And there are many firms who would sell you their services for that. But I was pre-firm money. Like I didn't want to go to them and ask sort of the broadened question because you'll get a broad answer, but you'll pay for it. And at the startup, we didn't have a lot of money. So I started doing research, just looking online. So Westlaw, or actually we had Lexus at the time and Google and learning, seeing relevant things. And when you do research, when you've done a good job, you start to see the same stuff coming up over and over. So I learned about these things called federal motor vehicle safety standards. So I spent a ton of time on those. And actually in my job description, I originally had safety as well, which is pretty bold. I mean, it's a small company, so everybody wears a lot of hats, but I'm not an engineer. I've not done anything in auto design world. I have zero experience in that. So the first thing I did there was start looking for a person who did safety. And we spent a lot of time thinking about this, like, should we have our safety person come from robotics or an AI realm or the automotive world? Because self driving cars kind of fit, they encompass both. 
we're making a car, which is a physical product that has been made for, well, they've been making cars for 100 years or a little more. And so that's a well-established realm of safety. There's standards about it that are growing as technology and cars advances. But then we have this whole other piece, which is we're writing software that's going to drive that car. We're creating a driver. And that's not something that Detroit automakers or really anybody knew that much about in the automotive field. So we ended up bringing in our first safety person who ended up leading for a while was from a medical device industry where you deal a lot with probabilities and technology. And that worked well because it was hardware, software, safety critical industry. And yeah, he had a lot of value to add. So that's some of the stuff that I did to learn. One was hiring, two was doing my own research. And then I did spend some time talking to experts. I remember my second week at Cruise, I went out to UC Berkeley and met with a renowned professor who'd been working on self-driving cars for a while. He was doing stuff in the 90s about it. And I just sort of asked him, you know, hey, what are the areas of law I need to know about? What should I be worried about? What are the biggest issues? Things like that. And he was kind enough to spend some time with me and get me up to speed. And what were the major takeaways while at Cruise? You were there for over four years. What were the key aha moments? Big aha moments. I think one was, hey, if I make a car that meets all the federal motor vehicle safety standards, the federal government doesn't have established rules about the driver. So a lot of people had been looking at cars with no steering wheels, cars with the seats turned around backwards, and that's really challenging to do. But if you start with a car that's certified, you buy it off the shelf, so to speak, it makes a lot of problems go away. You go to a less obviously regulated realm. Of course, you need to make a safe product, but there's not just in-your-face regulations that say you can't do what you are trying to do. Whereas if you want to make a car with the seats facing backward, it's just really difficult with the standards that already exist. You basically need to get regulatory change. So that was one. A second was, maybe many startups have this realization, but I needed to find other examples like this federal one where, look, if we do something this way, we're not going to have a whole bunch of legal challenges. So that's maybe what a lawyer's job is in general at a startup or at a company. But I was searching for those. Like, hey, if we do something, we are out of the woods on this huge, complicated area of regulation. So for one, it was make the car like a normal car, buy a normal car and work off of that. And in the areas where it was just inevitable or unavoidable, we kind of helped the team realize that this stuff is it's really expensive. And it takes a long time to get a regulatory or legislative change. It takes a lot of effort. And at the startup, you know, 15 people, you can't really do that. So you work in industry groups and you look at the big players. In our case, that was Google to hope that they were going to do the right thing. So that was another kind of big realization. And shifting to the technology side, how has the technology evolved from when you first started at Cruise to now? And how has that affected the competitive and regulatory landscape? I was technically at Cruise for about four and a half years, but you know, I've been talking to Kyle for longer. I wasn't doing work, but just thinking about the space before then. And so, gosh, when we started, there wasn't a super robust space. I think self-driving cars were this thing that were way out in the future, and Google was the main player. It was in the Moonshot group, and they were working on this thing, but people didn't really imagine it or think of it as a part of their daily lives anytime soon. And right before I started at Cruise, Google had put a bunch of effort in to get a state law passed. And that law set up a regulatory scheme through the DMV that the DMV then had to go and actually craft the regs. But there, Google was the big player in the game and the automakers were doing things, but from a very different approach. There's two ways you could come at it. One is to say, we're going to gradually advance cars to go from anti-lock brakes to lane departure assist to driving you on the highway to driving you on the highway and some side streets to being able to drive you on side streets during the daytime, so on and so forth. So that's sort of the gradual progression. And that's what the automakers were looking at. 
compare that to Google had realized and they said, look, we think this gradual thing, there's this interim stage where the car isn't good enough to drive on its own, but it's pretty darn good. So the fallback is a person and it can be a long time between when the car needs a person to jump in and help. And people are actually really bad at paying attention for that long period of time. So humans actually aren't a good fallback there. So Google decided, look, we need to make a big jump. So this middle period where we need a human, but not very often is too dangerous. So we, Google, are going to spend all our time and resources to make this thing called level four. There's five levels of autonomy that someone came up with, SAE, which is an industry body, the Society of Automotive Engineers. So they came up with these five levels and Google said, look, level three is too dangerous. So we're going to go to level four where it's, you don't need a human at all in the loop if you're in the right area. So they took a different approach than the automakers. And at that point, I think they had maybe driven a couple hundred thousand miles and nobody else was really doing autonomous driving at that time. Now, of course, the industry is packed. There are tons of startups who are doing the full stack, so to speak, where they're making a full-on car as well as the software to drive it. And there's a bunch of companies around the edge looking to supply things. So the LiDAR industry, LiDAR is a key sensor for self-driving cars. That's a huge industry now. Automotive camera, automotive radar, people who are doing mapping. So the industry, there's really an ecosystem now. All of the big automakers have a play, either their own or have purchased someone to do self-driving for them. And there's a bunch of startups. So I think it's worth noting the radar versus LiDAR technology because there's this ongoing debate about which technology is most critical for AV. Elon Musk believes you only really need radar. You don't need LiDAR. LiDAR is too expensive. And everyone pretty much disagrees. <laughs> Elon is starting to get some converts. I should give him credit. I think there's a guy named George Hotz who, who started comma.ai. They believe that radar and cameras are the future too. But to step back, so if I have a self-driving car work, it needs to see the world. It needs to understand what's going on around it. So there are all kinds of different sensors that help you know what's going on around you. There's ultrasound, there's microphones, there's cameras, there's radar. So there's this technology called LiDAR, which the L stands for laser. It works similarly to radar in that instead of some sound, it sends out a laser and the return, what bounces back, it measures those returns. I don't know if it was developed for the defense industry, but it got popularized in the context of self-driving cars at one of the DARPA challenges. So anyway, it gives you a very rich sense of the world, much more clear returns than you get from radar. And it helps you know what's going on around you, which is extremely important for a self-driving car, just like when you're driving your own car. So early days, the DARPA challenges, all the companies started using LiDAR. Those company or the competitors, I should say, they're mostly research institutions. So those groups morphed into companies. People who left those institutions ended up starting companies for self-driving cars, many of them at Google, and they carried the LiDAR with them. The downside of LiDAR is that it's very expensive. Early days, these sensors would cost $70,000, $80,000. And now, depending on which degree of LiDAR you get, you can have five dollars $30,000 LiDAR sitting on a car. You may be able to get a car to drive itself with that, but it's who are you going to sell that car to? You know, It's a $300,000 car, and it's extremely dialed in. This thing is calibrated very finicky, so to speak. So that's one view, which is that, okay, we need to get cars to drive themselves first and hope and do what work we can to drive the cost of LiDAR down. That's how we'll get to a production-worthy, consumer-worthy self-driving car. 
Okay, then we switch tracks and look at the other version. So this is what Elon Musk is the proponent of. He said, look, that stuff is way too expensive. I believe that with just radars and cameras, you can get enough information. You can use machine learning and get enough data, enough driving experience that you can filter and understand from these sort of fuzzy returns from radar and cameras. Camera's not necessarily fuzzy, but it just doesn't work in all conditions. You know, if it's nighttime, it's not lit, can't use it or doesn't work as well. I, Elon, can get a car to drive itself. And the big plus factors of that are automotive radar and automotive cameras, for the most part, are cheap. You can put them on a car and not make the car insanely expensive. So on the theory that if you get enough data and you train it enough, or you have models that are well-trained enough, you can drive a car by itself. This is the big debate. Uh, there's a, obviously a big pie at the end of the road of impacting, like, there's a lot of benefits that come from self-driving cars. So everybody's eagerly striving to get there. But that's the core of the debate. So for people starting an autonomous vehicle company, what would they want to consider about the regulatory landscape? How can we properly articulate the current regulatory framework? I mentioned earlier when I was talking to Kyle before we started Cruise, and at all levels of government, they have an angle of regulating self-driving cars. So at the city level, traditionally, cities control things like parking and pickups and drop-offs. And for self-driving cars, it's really important. Most people would say that the fields in which self-driving cars will first come out commercially are either in delivery or the ride-hailing environment. So where you can park and how you can pick people up and drop them off is pretty critical. So your city regulators, they've got something to say about what you do. Then you kind of move up a notch to the state level and states traditionally control things like insurance and driver licensing. So what qualifications does your driver need to have? So if it's you or me, we need to be able to see right. We need to be able to see a certain distance at night and at day. We need to be able to parallel park, things like that. So in the self-driving car context, the state DMV or equivalent agency, they want to know that the driver that you've created, your self-driving brain, this piece of software is good enough to do it. And also the insurance that I mentioned, it's typically a different agency, but they care about how much coverage you have. So states regulate self-driving cars in that way. There's, of course, other areas, but these are kind of the big ones. So then finally, at the federal level, I mentioned earlier that traditionally the federal government controls what a car looks like. So, you know, when you get in an accident, how much your bumper can move and how many inches the steering column can travel if impacted at a certain speed. And when your car rolls over, how much of it crushes. These are these federal motor vehicle safety standards that I mentioned. So the trick with self-driving cars is, well, I've made this thing that's a driver, yes, but it's actually a car. So should the federal government control that and regulate it or should the states as the federal government because it's a car, the states because it's a driver? And there's been this, I wouldn't call it push-pull, but the federal government has said, you know, they've put out policies and guidance, but no firm rules. And so the states who are experiencing the companies testing and driving on their streets have kind of jumped out and created some rules about the driver, which kind of impacts what the car looks like. So the federal government course cares there. So that's the state of play. There's a bunch of state laws that have some requirements for testing and in some states, commercial operation of self-driving cars. And they generally focus on insurance, amount of testing you've done, and certifications by the company who wants to launch the car about safety and things like that. There are many societal implications that have to be considered as well. What, in your view, are the positive versus negative when it comes to the effects on society from AV? There are claims that autonomous vehicles would significantly decrease traffic, though it seems that studies have really debunked that idea. And there's also a lot of talk about the automating away of jobs through self-driving vehicles, self-driving trucks, automating away Uber drivers, etc., 
how do you articulate the positive versus the negative effects of autonomous vehicles? I would say I'm generally on the optimistic side. I think there is opportunity for incredible benefit to the world. There's also the potential for downside. There's no question that negative things could happen. The original premise of self-driving cars, at least for the founder of my company, was that they're, they can be safer. So before we launch the self-driving car, it's going to be safer than a person. And so that's like every year in the US, about 35 to 40,000 people die. And that's kind of crazy. I forget the stat, but I think it's like a two Boeing 737s going down every day. And that, that's just happening back and forth, back and forth every single day. We're losing people. So self-driving cars are going to make that better. Then the second thing that they can certainly will help is people's ability to get around. So access to transportation is a big deal for economic mobility and just people's well-being in general. And self-driving cars will help that. As they mature, self-driving cars, I do anticipate, will be cheaper to get around on a per-mile basis, even than owning your own car. And so cheaper transportation is better for people generally. The potential downsides here impacts on transit and the environment. So more vehicle miles traveled, more miles on the road, has the potential to increase congestion and hurt the environment. And so companies have to pay attention to what they use their cars for and what kind of cars they use. So using all electric vehicles is one example of doing things to mitigate that potential downside. And interestingly, on the traffic point, this is a big debate of how self-driving cars will impact traffic. I think the rideshare industry, the verdict is, well, the jury's kind of come back in that it's not good for transit. The premise that people would stop driving and they would only use rideshare hasn't really proved true. It's just shown people are traveling more and still keeping their cars. So we've got more traffic. With AVs, they can be significantly more efficient than people. So when you get to a pretty high penetration rate, the cars are talking to each other. So they get much closer. You know, eventually it's going to be crazy. You're not going to have stoplights. Cars are just going to be weaving through each other like when you walk in a crowd of people. So at a high penetration rate, I think AVs are going to be pretty incredible for traffic. And the last component here is how cars are regulated. So what we allow human-driven cars to do and self-driven cars to do will impact what they do for the world. The worker impact one, I think we're seeing automation impact what people do, not necessarily take away jobs. So we've seen this, I mean, over thousands of years, people create new tools and they're worried like, oh, we used to hammer railroad spikes ourselves and we got a machine to do it where all the railroad spike hammer is going to go. And we found that new jobs come up. We didn't know what those new jobs would be then, but they exist now. I similarly can't predict what the new jobs will be, but I'm confident that they will come up. But I think this isn't going to be an immediate impact for on the trucking example, like America has a huge shortage of truck drivers and the degree of self-driving that they're working on trucking right now is a partnership model where you still need a person. So I think we're going to have some time as society to work through those changes, but it is something we've got to pay attention to because people having jobs is important. You can't just swallow them up. Then second on security, that's critical to like the core premise of a self-driving car being safer, right? So that's something that I I know Cruz spends a lot of time, effort, money, strategy, thought on, and I can't speak for all the manufacturers, but it's pretty obvious that you shouldn't launch a self-driving car that's overly susceptible to security, to hacking. And that's a job that's really challenging. Getting something perfectly secure is not realistic. What you have to do is continue to put effort into fighting potential attacks and learning from the attacks that do happen. 
it's an area of paramount importance. This is like such a new industry and industry is a bold term for it because nobody's making any money off of it right now. Self-driving cars aren't done. It's in a development stage. It's been hyped up a lot. People thought they were going to happen sooner. And it turns out that self-driving cars are really hard to make because driving is complex. So I think there's industries that have done well. If the players have gotten together and figured out what's important and what they can share so that they can further their industry along. And I think we need more of that in the AV industry. It happens. But right now, everybody's such early days, people are pretty cagey. And I think the world would be a better place if we can realize how together we can improve things. Matt, really great to have you on. Thanks so much. And good luck in your new role. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Part three of the Autonomous Vehicles series, powered by the leading resource for in-house attorneys, TechGC. Once again, I'm Chris Sands, and thanks for tuning in.